Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Every Wednesday, we discuss all things dogs, from health and veterinary care to training and behavior science. Follow us and join Good Dog's mission to build a better world for our dogs and the people who love them. Hey, everybody. We are back here at the Good Dog Pod. I am Dr. Michael Delgado. I am part of the health standards and research team at Good Dog, and today we are here with Dr. Christina, who we recently met and we're really excited to work with her. Dr. Christina is a veterinarian and blogger at The Wellbred Vet, which you can find at wellbredvet.com. She received her degree in veterinary medicine from North Carolina State, where she began her focus on reproductive medicine. She serves on the board of directors for the Society of Theragenology, and she is an owner and practicing clinician at Elon Oaks Veterinary Hospital in North Carolina. Dr. Christina, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) Yay. And we're going to talk about neonatal puppies, which, you know, who doesn't want to talk about puppies? But first, I think it'd be great to just hear a little bit about your path as a clinician and what kind of drew you to focus on reproductive medicine. Yeah, it was kind of a circuitous path because initially when I graduated from undergrad, I actually went and taught high school science. Oh, cool. For three years. I had kind of thought about being a veterinarian before that, realized I didn't know why I wanted to be a veterinarian and decided to go into teaching instead. I tell everyone that I loved the teaching part of teaching, but then I pretty quickly realized that veterinary medicine was still calling me. So I started taking classes to do a master's of animal science while I was teaching. And that was when I started taking reproductive science classes in particular, like some assisted reproductive technology stuff and kind of just the bounds of what technology can allow us to do in reproductive science. And it just grabbed me and didn't let go. Just (laughs) the idea, like the idea that I can affect a life that comes into this world that like wouldn't exist without my help. And just like the incredible things that we can do with science and technology. I knew that that was what I wanted to do. I learned in that time frame what the word theriogenologist was. (laughs) I hadn't previously known what it was. And I was so excited that I called my mom because, you know, (laughs) that's what we do. There's a word for what I want to do. So then I reapplied to vet school, got in. And then, I mean, from the first day I walked into the vet school, I was the theorio person, right? If you ask anyone in my class, it's like, oh, who was the theorio person in your vet school class? It's like, oh, Christina was definitely that person. So it just fascinates me, like the possibilities. That's awesome. That's really cool. I mean, when you find that kind of thing that calls you, you have to follow it. So today we're going to talk about clinical signs in the neonate, which is, you know, a more serious topic. I mean, puppies are great, but problems can happen. So can we first just start by talking about some of the common congenital and inherited defects that you might see in neonatal puppies? Yeah, we definitely can. And a lot of times the thing about neonatal puppies is that so much of the time we never get an answer to a lot of things that are wrong with puppies, which can be really frustrating, but there are some more common things. So things that we think about a lot of times, like we have abnormalities of anatomy and abnormalities of physiology, abnormalities of immunology. So all of those various different things cause different problems. So there are things like cleft palate. So the palate doesn't form correctly, doesn't close all the way. And that can affect just the palate or the face. That would be an abnormality that we see not uncommonly in puppies, things like heart defects with them having a heart murmur or their heart forming incorrectly. 
both of those two things, as well as like sometimes puppies will be born with their intestines outside of their body. That mm-hmm. is also something that we see sometimes. Okay. Those are all things that I kind of lump together because they are defects in the embryonic development of the puppy. So in the way that the puppy develops as an embryo, those are all errors in the way that they're normally supposed to develop. So that's kind of like one category. Okay. There's also, I mean, hundreds of genetic diseases that obviously that puppies can be born with. And there are some things that we can do to avoid that with genetic testing and health testing. But a lot of those things we may not even see until they're older. So that may be something that depending on what the disease is, it may present later. So with the cleft palate, that's physiology or anatomy? I would call that anatomy. Yeah. Okay. And then you mentioned immunology as a potential problem as well. It may not fall into the category exactly of congenital or inherited in a way, but when puppies are first born, they essentially have almost no immune system of their own. They're completely dependent on their mother and specifically they're dependent on colostrum, which is the first milk that the mother produces. And that colostrum becomes their immune system. It literally becomes their immune system when they're first born. And so if for whatever reason, they don't get that colostrum, like either their mother doesn't have enough colostrum, they aren't able to nurse, whatever happens, that basically leaves them with no immune system. And so any type of disease that otherwise they would be able to protect themselves from, distemper virus, parvovirus, canine adenovirus, we may never know if that's what caused the puppy to be sick or to pass away. So that's not really entirely congenital or inherited, but they do get it from their mother. So I kind of think of it in the same place too. Yeah. The colostrum thing just seems like such a design flaw. Like if you don't get that first milk, you're like (laughs) kind of out of luck. Yeah. And you have to get it within, like for puppies specifically, within the first 12 hours or, I mean, the physiology of how colostrum is absorbed into the body and then becomes part of this, like in the body's circulation is, I think, really cool. But yeah, maybe a little bit of a design flaw that there's not like a fail safe, like a (laughs) backup plan or... I guess it ensures that if you don't latch right away, you're not going to... um, Yeah. Nature's harsh that way. It's like, oh, well, you're not strong enough now. So I guess you should just pass away. Yeah. Yeah, It's sad. Yeah. Now, (laughs) when you see these types of problems, are they always fatal? Are they treatable? Like when should people make decisions? Like is euthanasia sometimes appropriate in puppies this small? Yeah, absolutely. It really depends on what it is. Like a cleft palate, is that manageable? Right, so that was the one that I was going to use as an example. So like cleft palate, cleft palate is a tricky one because it is not necessarily fatal. Like the condition itself is not necessarily fatal. What happens with cleft palate puppies if they are allowed to nurse normally is that, so basically there's a pathway, essentially the hole in the roof of their mouth is essentially what cleft palate is. And so when they nurse, they get milk into their airway rather than their stomach, and then they aspirate and they can get pneumonia and then they can die and drown in their own lungs. And it's just not pretty. So when I have a puppy patient that has a cleft palate, It's something that I have a really serious conversation with the reader, with the person where it's like this puppy, depending on how severe the cleft palate is, like this puppy needs to be tube fed every two hours until you can wean it onto solid food and you don't get a break at bedtime. It's every two hours and it's really intensive care. And some people 
are like, I can't do that. And if we can't find a rescue or someone that's willing to do that, I do sometimes recommend euthanasia for those puppies because I know that I can limit their suffering. I know that euthanasia is a much better, kinder death for them than dying of pneumonia secondarily. So, but cleft palate doesn't have to be fatal. So if in the case of someone that is willing to do the intensive care, you know, two feet every two hours until they're able to be weaned and et cetera, many cleft palate abnormalities can be surgically repaired. But of course we have to get the puppy to an age that it's safe enough for them to go under anesthesia for them to have that surgically repaired. So it's a maybe on that one. It depends on how it requires really intensive care. And if you can't do the really intensive care, then euthanasia is a consideration for that one. Okay. Now when puppies are born, mom's going to do a lot of the work, but maybe breeders. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) we hope so. But obviously Breeders are going to be checking on the puppies. What are some signs that they should be looking for that a puppy might be having some problems? So the number one thing that I always tell people, and I'm going to say it first because it is the most important thing, is to weigh the puppies. I recommend weighing the puppies twice a day. So morning and evening, twice a day, every day, for at least a week, depending. And if they're having problems, I personally do it for longer than that. And that is going to be one of the earliest signs One of the best ways to tell if the puppy is having problems, because if they're not gaining weight consistently, something is wrong. Okay. With the exception that within the first 24 hours, it can be normal for them to lose a little bit of weight, like about 10% of their weight maximum. But then after that first 24 hours, they should be gaining every single day, gaining, gaining bigger, bigger, bigger. Okay. So that is like just a little gram scale or a little kitchen scale can definitely save puppies' lives. Absolutely. So that's definitely one of the first things is failure to gain weight. Other things that might be a problem, it's hard to describe it until you know it, but the puppy's body just has a feel to it. And so they have a little bit of rigidity. Like you pick them up and they move in a way that is intentional. Okay. Like their muscles are responding to being handled. Yeah. Like they're moving and they wiggle and they squirm, but it's like (laughs) intentional. Okay. And then puppies that are not doing well are really limp. They maybe aren't strong enough to wiggle and squirm intentionally. They're just kind of deflated almost. And so if you have a puppy that doesn't have that good feel to it, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's a good sign. Definitely another one is body temperature. Usually that's not one of the first ones that people see because usually it's, oh, this puppy doesn't look quite right. Let me check their temperature. But that's another thing that, you know, they might be having an issue. And uh, I think those are probably some of the most common ones. Obviously, there are other ones. Like if you see, going back to cleft palates, you'll often see like milk bubbles in their nose or something like that. Can you always see a cleft palate or is it sometimes like a little hidden? Like, are they always going to have a little visible change in the conformation of the mouth? You may not see it on the outside of the puppy's body. Okay. So when puppies are born and you're checking them over, we check mouths and we check butts. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, I tell people to open their mouth all the way so that you can Mm. see the entire palate, basically from their nose, from like the filter of their nose, like all the way to the back. And that whole area should just be pink and connected and shouldn't have any holes in it. But Cleft palates can present in a bunch of different ways. So it can be just on the hard palate. It can be on the soft palate. It can be the hard palate and the soft palate and the nose. 
anywhere along that midline can be a defect and you can see them, but you have to look for them. Okay. Gotcha. When you mentioned milk bubbles, I was like, oh, wouldn't they know already, but not necessarily. Yeah. If it's one that's a midline defect, like in the palate, Mm -hmm. sometimes, I mean, you have to look for them to know. And then I say, check mouths and butts because we want to make sure that the puppy has an anus and is able to defecate. So yeah. we check both ends of the puppy and make sure. We that- definitely hear about puppies that are born without fully developed rectums and everything. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. We want to make sure that those are both there. Okay. So if someone comes to you with a puppy who's not doing well, how do you know what's wrong? <laughs> Great question. And I will start off by saying, sometimes we don't. A lot of times we don't know exactly what's wrong. And treatment, a lot of times with neonatal puppies ends up being symptomatic. And we kind of go through a checklist of the things. It's like, okay, what is their temperature? Is their temperature normal? Is it high? Is it low? How can we correct that? Are they gaining weight? Is it because their latch, like, are they able to latch well? Do they have a strong suckle? Are they able to get milk? Are they a little tiny runt and all of their siblings are pushing them out of the way? You know, that kind of thing. As a veterinarian, I listen with a stethoscope to their lungs and then also to their gut sounds and see if those are normal, if their lungs sound raspy, you know, anything like that. We can do x-rays on neonatal puppies, especially for lung problems. If they are developing pneumonia, we can see that there. So if we see anything like that, there would be evidence of an infection, then we would start treating with antibiotics. And a lot of times we may identify the specific cause, like the specific reason, the specific thing that's wrong when we may not. Okay. It just kind of depends on what it is. A lot of neonatal puppy problems can be solved with warmth and fluids and tube feeding and okay. just supportive care, supportive care. Yeah. and getting them through it. So okay, run through that list of <laughs> things that could be wrong. We do a physical okay. exam and run through the list. Gotcha. You mentioned this and I just have to ask, what do puppy guts sound like when you listen to them with the stethoscope? I mean, it sounds like you would kind of expect like the way that your stomach might be gurgly when you're hungry, mm-hmm. kind of like it sounds like that sort of. They're quieter than human guts. I mean, not that I really spend a lot of time listening to human guts, but. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But yeah, there's a normal level of kind of like bubbling, gurgling that is supposed to be there. Okay. Telling you something's happening. You don't want it to be too quiet or possibly too loud. Can we talk briefly about sepsis? What is it? How do puppies get it? Is this a big issue for neonates and can it be treated? Yeah. So sepsis is related to infections in the body that have basically taken over the whole body. And sepsis itself is actually kind of an overreaction of the immune system, like overreaction of the body trying desperately to treat this infection that's in the body. And so it is absolutely life-threatening. It is very difficult to get neonate, like teeny tiny puppies, to get them to respond to treatment, but it can happen. It can be treated. And kind of the same as what we talked about before, like supportive care, fluids, heat, and antibiotics until they can get through it. And is there a specific way that puppies get sepsis? There's not one specific way that they can get it. I think that in neonatal puppies, what we most likely, we're going back to the colostrum situation. So most likely... Maybe they didn't get their full dose of colostrum. Their immune system was weaker. And then there was just 
something that their immune system would have been able to handle otherwise, but because they didn't have that protection, they were not able to protect themselves against it. And it caused an infection that then overwhelmed their system. You are listening to The Good Dog Pod. We're here with Dr. Christina, and we'll be right back with more about neonatal puppies. Your Litter A to Z is the leading science-based course for dog breeders. It includes expertly designed 18 modules, checklists, and reports that cover before breeding, getting your bitch pregnant, whelping your litter, and raising your pups. This course usually costs $479, but you can access it for free when you join Good Dog. Click the link in the show notes to learn more. We are back with Dr. Christina from the Elon Oaks Veterinary Hospital. She is the author of the blog, Well-Bred Vet, and all-around expert on reproductive medicine. We are talking about clinical signs in neonatal puppies today. I'd like to chat about, well, okay, one thing. You mentioned the colostrum. So is there any way if the puppy does not get that colostrum that we can help them? Like, is there a supplement or like, I don't see colostrum on the shelves of a pet store or anything. So, Well, there is colostrum on the shelves of the pet store, but it wouldn't matter. So the way that puppies absorb colostrum is that in the first 12 hours of their life, their gut is able to absorb the colostrum in a way that it is not able to absorb it after the first 12 to 24 hours of life. Okay. So if they don't get colostrum within the first 12 to 24 hours of life, you can give them all the colostrum in the world and their body is just going to digest it like it would anything else. Okay. However, what we can do in cases where we suspect that maybe they didn't get the full dose of colostrum is by giving them one of the pieces of the mother's blood, basically. So giving them plasma from the mother's blood, because that will also contain the antibodies that can protect the puppy. And we give it underneath their skin, right? So we don't feed it to them, but we give it underneath their skin so that their body can absorb it and it doesn't get digested. It's definitely not a perfect substitute for colostrum, but it can definitely provide them with a little bit more protection than they would have otherwise. Okay. And that's something someone could go to a reproductive vet for assistance with if they felt like, oh, the puppies did not, for whatever reason, the mother wouldn't nurse or wasn't producing milk, then call your repro vet. Yes. I mean, technically it is a procedure that any veterinarian could do, but yes, call your vet. Cool. So I want to chat about fading puppy syndrome because it's a term that gets thrown around a lot. And I think there might be a tendency to kind of just assume like that's a disease or a condition that kills puppies. You know, so what do people mean when they say fading puppy syndrome? How did that term kind of become the lingo for this puppy's not doing well? So the way that I kind of explain this to people is it's kind of the same concept as a human saying, oh, I had a stomach bug. So what is a stomach bug? There's not just one stomach bug. There's any number of things. But at the same time, if you tell someone I had a stomach bug last week, there are a couple of assumptions that they can make about what was going on with you. So like you might've been vomiting, you might've had diarrhea, you might've had gut pain. There's some predictable clinical signs, regardless of what the underlying actual causative agent was. And so that's kind of the same concept as like fading puppy syndrome. So we have some generalized clinical signs that are nonspecific that can be caused by any number of underlying conditions. And again, it can be called fading puppy syndrome or failure to thrive is another phrase that's often 
used, often thrown around. And so it's just a generalized term for something for puppies that aren't gaining weight. You know, all those clinical signs that we described earlier, they're not active and wiggling and intentionally moving. They might have a weak suckle. They might have a poor rooting reflex. So it's just kind of this general, like they're just not well. Right. When I worked in the animal shelter, it was ADR. Can't do one right. Yep. That is definitely a condition, like a (laughs) descriptor. The first time I heard that was at a wildlife rehab center that I worked at before vet school. And they were teaching us all the different medical terminology and they taught us ADR. And I was like, that's so weird. They made that up. And then like, I went to the next medical place. And I was like, it's everywhere. everyone uses it. <laughs> so weird. But yes, so they're just ADR. Yeah. So that's kind of what fading puppy syndrome is. We use the word syndrome, right? Because it's not one specific disease. It's a suite of clinical signs that kind of often occur together. Okay. And we kind of touched on this earlier. It sounds like it's not so much diagnostics as assessment and supportive care. I mean, are there diagnostics people should be doing like blood work or anything? And also, I'd love to hear if you think people should be doing necropsies if they are experiencing losses in their breeding program. Yeah, absolutely. So diagnostics, it's very, very difficult to do diagnostics on neonates. It's difficult to do blood work. They're so tiny. You can't take very much blood from them, especially with like toy breeds. I mean, you would just exsanguinate them trying to get a blood sample. So we often don't. We can sometimes, but we often, it's just not safe. Okay. So the risks outweigh the benefits. I do a fair amount of x-rays because that allows me to look inside. I also have the ability to do ultrasound. So I do a fair amount of ultrasound, but really you're right. I mean, most of the time it is supportive care, regardless of the underlying condition. So teaching the breeder how to tube feed, because that's definitely a life-saving technique for puppies that aren't able to nurse, aren't able to latch, they're too weak, they're hypoglycemic, et cetera. So tube feeding, keeping them warm. So puppy incubators are increasingly common. They're increasingly affordable. I definitely think that there's something that people can look into. One of my clients is a dachshund breeder and she had a fading puppy recently that absolutely her incubator saved that puppy's life. Wow. No doubt. Like that puppy would have died without it. Now, granted, I shouldn't say that. She also did very intensive care. (laughs) Right, right. But yeah, absolutely. The incubator. Shout out to my friends at Puppy Warmer. (laughs) (laughs) So then also postmortem, do you recommend necropsy? So I definitely do recommend having necropsies done on puppies. Once the puppy is deceased, there's a lot of information that we can get from them, from the tissues that otherwise we wouldn't have. And obviously that puppy is already gone, but it can potentially make the difference for any other puppies. If there are multiple that are ill, they can definitely save the lives of the other puppies. I do think that it could be done more. I think that it's not done as commonly. I guess I will comment that if you do decide that you're going to have a puppy necropsied, don't put it in the freezer. So you put it in the refrigerator until you can get it to the vet or to the pathology lab, but not in the freezer because freezing will actually change some of the architecture mm-hmm. of the tissues. Okay. And that may or may not complicate the ability to get a diagnosis. Good to know. But yeah, I think that necropsy can be a really valuable tool for helping the surviving puppies get the treatment that they need. Okay. And for a new breeder who has a puppy who's not gaining weight every day, how soon should they contact their veterinarian? 
immediately. Like as soon as they think that something is wrong, especially for a new breeder. Yeah. If you've been through it a couple of times and you have an idea and you have the tools, you have an incubator, like my client, you know how to do sub-Q fluids, you know how to tube feed. Okay. You know, you know what you're doing. You can kind of ride it out for maybe a couple of days potentially, but especially if you don't have the ability to do those things, then I would say the sooner the better. I mean, literally hours make a difference for these little tiny babies. Yeah. I'd like to hear a little bit about your blog, if you don't mind sharing, like what made you decide to well-bred vet? It's a great resource. We were really excited when we came across it. And that was what ended up putting us in touch with you. But yeah, tell us a little bit about your decision to become a vet blogger. Sure. It actually went back to my very first year of being a veterinarian. I had a client who came in with It was not a good situation, right? But the client herself was 14 or so. She was a child, essentially a teenager. And she had a nine-month-old puppy who was pregnant. And her parents sent her into the exam room with the puppy by herself. They sat in the lobby. They said, this is your puppy. This is your responsibility. Go talk to the veterinarian. And I ultrasounded the nine-month-old puppy. And I said, yep, she's pregnant. And this 14-year-old girl looked at me and said, what do I do? Wow. And my heart just sank. And I was like, I have so much to tell you. Like, where do I start? You know? And so I word vomited at her for 30 minutes or so. I don't know, for a long time. And her (laughs) eyes glazed over and she was just like, and I knew that she wasn't absorbing any of it. And I was like, I just need to be able to hand her some information to help her through this. And that was how the blog was born was like, I need more resources to be able to support my clients. Cause I mean, that poor little girl, she didn't know any better. Like she didn't know anything. She was trying to do the right thing without a lot of support. Right. Right. She (laughs) wanted to do the right thing. She wanted to help her puppy. She loved her puppy. Yeah. I don't remember the exact circumstances around how the puppy got pregnant, but she was already, I mean, I think she was like a week away from her due date roughly. They had just noticed that the puppy was getting fat and (laughs) then brought her into me. But yeah, that was how the blog was born. And it definitely goes back to, you know, like I said, I have a history as being a teacher. So that teaching element is a huge part of what drives me. So yeah, yeah, that's where it was born. That's great. I mean, there's such a huge need for more science communication on a broader level and reproduction. You know, it's just not something a lot of people talk about with companion animals. So it's a great resource. Everyone listening, go check it out, wellbredvet.com. So last question. I know we talked a lot of heavy puppy topics, so let's end on a lighthearted note. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about your own pets. Sure. So I have Border Collies. Ooh, nice. Right now I have, <laughs> it's funny because like I know lots and lots about the science and the reproductive part from like the vet side, but my Border Collie, Cora, is my first breeding dog. So I'm kind of a new breeder, but also it's like a new breeder who has all this knowledge about reproductive medicine. But really when it comes to my own pets, all of my knowledge falls out of my head and I'm like, (laughs) oh my gosh, like, I don't know. I don't know anything. Like my baby. So Cora is four years old now. She just had her first litter, I guess, seven months ago now. And I kept one of the puppies from her litter. So I have her and her daughter. And I mean, they're pretty typical border collies. They run around like crazy and Cora lives for playing fetch. She would literally die playing fetch and probably (laughs) die happy. I don't know. (laughs) So yes, they're great. 
Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here with us, Dr. Christina. We will definitely have you back again to talk more about reproductive medicine and dogs. So I look forward to those future opportunities to chat with you. But yes, please accept my extreme gratitude for all you shared today. This is really helpful and we just appreciate you. Thank you so much. I love being here.